Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfi. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkandstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm very happy to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, Ricky Vincent, an author, radio show host, educator, and funk music's best-known historian and advocate. His beloved book, entitled Funk, the Music, the People, and the Rhythm of the One, right there, dropped in 1996. And since 1997, he has shared new and classic songs through the History of Funk radio show, on KPFA, which airs Friday nights at 10 p.m. Pacific time. Through the years, he has penned liner notes for several album reissues for in his second book, titled Party Music, The Inside Story of the Black Panthers Band and How Black Power Transformed Soul Music. He's appeared in documentaries and articles. And in 2016, he even cut his own album called Fool for the Funk. Ricky, <laughs> man, my longtime brother from another mother, for sure. It's so great to have you. Uh, it's wonderful to be here, Scott. And again, I'm honored to be uh, a part of your your wall of game. All the people that you be checking with, um, it's great. It's great work that you do, and it's just great to be immersed in funk so deep. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I feel like we ran these parallel lives. You know, in California, you up in the north, me in the south. I think. Uh, did you graduate in '79? High school. I was graduated seventy nine, and I, same for you. Yeah, yeah, same. So we were like right in sync, you know, uh, and uh, you know, right around seventy four ish is when the funk called me, you know, and uh, it was never the same, you know. Thank goodness. Yeah, because we heard it on the radio back in the day, and uh, that was my brother was bringing home singles that were messing with my head. But I heard up for the downstroke on the radio in 1974, and nothing's been the same since. You know, it's been a, it's been a quest to to sort of to to return to that to that moment of getting spanked by by the one like that. 
and uh, and I, I keep going back to it. I have to explain well, what is the well, what is the one? Can you explain the one? Go back to up for the downstroke, and that thing has just got the boom that you need, and 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 everything goes from there, as far as I'm concerned. You remember what was the first album that you kind of bought on your own with your own money back then? Well, there was um, I was really into Jungle Boogie and uh, Hollywood Swingin' and how Cool uh, and the Gang had had sort of they they kept coming with Wild and Peaceful. It kept happening. So much was going on, and uh, I don't know. I think maybe my brother already bought it, and then I was in a. Uh, some of the, I think my high school counselor wanted wanted me to have some guidance, so I had to follow somebody that was a, a co- in in college up at Cal because I was at Berkeley High, and this guy he was a cool guy, but he was a music snob, and he kept saying that the music I was into was just you know bubblegum and juvenile and this and that and the other, and so. Partly because I love this record and partly because I wanted to impress this guy, I paid my own money and bought Light of Worlds by Kool and the Gang. And that's the album that had Summer Madness. And that was maybe two or three years old by then. But some of us knew that was a legendary record right away. And we said, this, this thing is decades ahead of its time. And Summer Madness has borne that out. And so even then, I recognize it. wait, this has some masterful jazz chops while bringing that thunder funk. And, and, you know, there's, there's larger issues of how they, you know, a lot of people were trying to be like earth, wind and fire and show some spirituality and some group allegiance at the same time. And uh, so I was just, I said, you know, this is, this is worth it for me. This is a thing to do. And I'm going to show this guy so he can't talk about me. And, um, and so that was the first record There was inner visions was in the house already. And then the first record I bought was uh light of worlds and that, you know, kind of set a standard. So every time I'm looking at a LTD album or a bar K's album, I can kind of measure it by, you know, how, how, how much are they reaching? Are they just trying to get paid or are they reaching for something internal external spiritual they want to say at the same time and you know the funk is capable of all of those all of those things mm-hmm. so light of worlds was higher plane on that say what light of worlds was higher plane on that one that record? higher plane was on there yeah. rhyme time people was on there and the opening track was street corner symphony and that is one of their kind of one-off just thunder funk jams that you know that's what the artists did back in the day they they tried to get on the radio with this that and the other and then for the funk of it they they would just go for the for the big bomb and whether that became a single or not it didn't matter that was the beautiful thing about it a lot of these artists they were making music to to make what they wanted to make and they adapted to the market but they were making it because it, it it had to come from them it had to happen and that wasn't hard to that wasn't hard to see it wasn't hard to spot maybe it's because i grew up around the musician my brother was a keyboard player 
and he was a few years older than me, and he had the clavinet, right? The thing that Stevie Wonder played on Superstition, you know, that had that, that little ow, 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 uh, outer space, Billy Preston type of thing. And so he had those chops and uh, a Fender Rhodes piano and um, and then a Moog synthesizer, that little one, mini Moog. And, um, and so he would just kind of casually explain, you know, what so-and-so is doing and how they're using it and why and things like that. And so I, without really taking notes, I was like hearing some of the inside of how this stuff was done and why. And, and then hearing his horror stories about bands he was in, um, you know, it was, it wasn't hard to, to gain a, a kind of a pulse of when somebody is putting a record together uh, to, to get a paycheck and when somebody is inspired and when somebody, you know, sort of found a groove, you know, a very, they just vary it in separate ways, you know, take an album like the world is a ghetto by war. Those cats were inspired from beginning to end of the whole project. Right. Uh, and sometimes you could tell where they're just sort of punching the clock and they're so good. They can do it anyway, but um, there's a difference. And that's part of the fun of of the hunt. And it was so gloriously competitive then with those bands. They were all trying to, you know, outdo each other and they were copping each other's licks and things and bringing it to different places. And that whole like melting pot that was happening uh, was just amazing. Um, it was a ama- it was an incredible story. And it was it was hard to 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 know what, what, when it was friendly loving competition and when it was a little more sinister competition uh it's like no we own this this town and we're gonna have to let them know today that this is how it's gonna go down and stuff like that but you know when you think about it that's that that works in a lot of venues that works in basketball it works in a lot of other other places and uh it, at the end of the day it's all love and that's all that they're doing and the, the point is for me is that folks had their own uh kind of control over the operation they're like this is a design we want to do and um uh, greg boyer said this just off the cuff we were talking to him because you know he's back with p-funk and and just as lively as ever and we got into talking about the music business and he, he said back in the day an artist would create you know some kind of work and then the market people had to figure out how to market what the artist made as opposed to the other way around where the market people tell them this is what you can and can't do and we're going to market it that way and they kind of know that going in so it's completely the the, the opposite of that uh nowadays uh but back then uh, we we believed in the artists and they knew it and when they worked like you said with each other we we knew that there was something special about you know the energy the community the vibes that each group had and, and how they were delivering it to their audience and to uh to one another as 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 colleagues co-conspirators funketeers whatever it was so yeah, that was just such a beautiful time, man. And I wish there was more stories about it. 
I wish there was more documentation about that time. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to collect. Um, we're both on Facebook, and it's every now and then some you know kind of action picture from a, a a big stage show that maybe we hadn't seen before and things like that. And um, so my I'm, I'm kind of always looking for the stadium shots where they're on stage and you can kind of see in the background thousands of people and i mean yeah every group has had some 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 hot days and every group has been on a lineup that maybe someone else was headlining but still uh these were big events and they deserve to be recognized and documented somehow some way because they were there these things happen and uh, how can you just how can you transform everything musically, culturally, and then just move along like nothing happened? Um, so uh, it's it's important, I think, to uh, to really compile and catalog uh, the the epic scale of uh, those grand funk years, and I don't mean the band grand funk. <laughs> That's a different story. Anyone anyone sitting on vintage footage from back then shame on you you know you got to release it get it out here for the public good because yeah there's just way too little you know footage of you know prime isley brothers or prime at least ohio players were on some of the tv shows but there are other bands that didn't really do that you know and you just can't find that footage it's it's a it's a tough one and and um i remember there was a lot of, um, uh, and people still do it. There are folks that still look for uh, rare uh, recordings, audio. Um, and I don't know if there is a community of people that is hunting down video in the same way. Um, there was a guy up in the Bay, his name is Calvin Lincoln, and he was recognized, he's still around, and he does a lot of this. Um, he had a, a cable access TV show called uh, Soul School. And he would run bootleg videos of, you know, Ain't Gonna Hurt Nobody by Brick, you know, uh, on Soul Train, played live, things like that. And you're like, whoa, I've never seen that. And so he would just do, you know, cable access TV is not, this is well before YouTube. Right as well before any of that, but it was this window into this stuff, and he became known to the folks doing shows like Unsung, and he would uh, provide them with like the you know the the uh, most available version of some video of a band that they were trying to do. Um, so he was he was that way. He was connected, and and I think he tracks a lot of that stuff down. He's got a lot of connects with bootleggers around the world that you know would help them um and i'm like why is this why does this have to be a bootleg thing why does it have to be so underground you know why why can't it be you know a big thing that's part of a big archive that's a big room in some r&b museum with with a budget you know um you know, maybe in another generation, something like that will uh, that story will get told. But uh, you know, for now, it's it's kind of connecting the dots. I'm finally starting to 
think about maybe the fog is lifting from all the uh i'll just say it all the weed i was smoking in high school and i went to so many shows it's all a blur now but you know you, you can kind of unpack it a little bit and say yeah i remember i think brass construction opened for the Izzy brothers that day at when they played the coliseum and boom 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 and i remember the blackbirds were at the coliseum in tuxedos for reasons i don't understand but they were there's a whole other conversation but they were a more of a jazz band that just they they hit a vibe doing funk so well uh, it it was kind of it was ahead of them really their demands I think the demands for the Blackbirds exceeded what they expected and they weren't necessarily into the packaging like some of these other acts were but it was just a beautiful and so there they are on the road you know with all these bands that knew what the show was about and uh, it was subtle but it was like those guys are jamming those guys are jamming wait these guys are hit boom 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 boom, boom. and we didn't necessarily know where everybody was coming from other than what we could read on liner notes, not liner notes, but just album cover information. Um, and I didn't subscribe to them, but a lot of folks got, I don't know if you did, uh, a lot of folks were reading like Blues and Soul magazine and, mm -hmm. and there were a handful of R&B fanzines that could oh, give yeah. you inside information. I'd reject as much as I could, but usually it would be I'm looking for the honey of the week uh, more than uh, the bands. But then if something popped up, I would, uh, you know, kind of pay attention to that. And nowadays, those are those are gems. Some of those stories, those real insightful stories from folks that, you know, love the groups were there. We're, we're vibing on them. And, you know, every one of those is saying this is one of the great, you know, albums of all time. And you're like, yeah, that's just promotion. But when you think about it 50 years later, those were some of the great albums of all time. I always wondered on Jet. I used to look at all those magazines. Most of my time, Ricky, was split between the record store and the newsstand, you know, uh, either reading about funk or seeing what I could find in the bins that maybe I hadn't heard of before. Um, and uh, Jed, I always wondered how they came up with that chart that they did, because it always seemed to be so counter to, uh, you know, the publications that were out there, you know, the, the record it industry publications. Like, hey, Tyrone, you want to do the countdown this week? Okay, <laughs> you go do it. I'm tired. I mean, that's what it seemed like. It was somebody who was just hanging out and put their favorite songs on the list. And that's okay. Uh, because that's what it did. And and now we go back to that. Like it's, you know, the hieroglyphic scrolls of the past. And, 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 but, you know, it was all love. And I, to this day, when I look at one of those jet countdowns, as much as I can say, I got all those records. There was always one that I did never heard of when it's on that list. Like I never heard of that one. Jimmy McCracken. I didn't know who that is. What? You know, yeah. just there was always one that snuck in there. It's like, dang, I don't have that. Um, and that just had you back at the store, you know, just crate digging, you know, your heart out just to see where where it comes up. But it was it was funny. You 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 kind of you kind of knew what you were looking for, but you didn't. 
and that's okay. And the more I kind of get in the jazz crate digging loop, there's a, a sensibility coming out of the jazz and the fusion world that uh, it's okay to um, expect something you've never heard, expect something that's out of your boundaries. This is beyond what you've been thinking and stuff like that. And so I really enjoyed how that made its way into or the, the bands that were doing that, like Cool and the Gang or Mandrill or some of these people, uh, they were, um, you know, trying to reach a middle ground, but we knew they were further out and they were they were trying to stretch you out and stretch out musically. And to me, that was that was a beautiful um, uh, combo play, mix and match, uh, the way people did that kind of thing. And not everybody was happy with it. And I wasn't entirely happy with it. Um, but I remember the day I came across like a funk record that had nothing but funk beats on it and didn't have a ballad or a gospel tune or a weird kind of jazzy thing that that interrupted everything. And it was just all just groove tracks. And it was like a kind of a a, a sweet and sour moment because it said, you know, the groove is more important than anything, but then it also said all that everything else that's part of the uh, ingredients in the recipe, all that's no longer as important. And so that's, I mean, I go back and forth with that. And every now and then we run into artists that still mix it up a lot. Right. You know, I'm out here in the Bay where Ron Cat and the Cat Delic does their thing. And he does the rockabilly. He does, you know, the heavy metal. Uh, he does the straight Rick Jane style funk. He does, you know, a, a lot of uh, soft ballads in his set. Right. All of that. And I'm like, you know, I feel a comfort zone with that, even if only half the tracks might wind up on my radio show that kind of thing well i mean that's that kind of variety is what made sly and prince so great too you know is bringing in all those different kinds of music and still being as funky as hell and quietly demanding something of the audience to recognize recognize that and um one of the last prince shows i went to there were these folks that were jamming and partying to the club hits and and just swooning to the ballads. And then when he plugged in and started doing his guitar work, they're like, okay, let's go get a drink. And they went off to the because they didn't, they weren't really ready for all those dimensions of him. And I'm like, they're missing out. It's all connected, damn it. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, you know, and you mentioned um, you mentioned so many things, Ricky. But uh, so your your brother was how many years older than you? He was two years older than me. Okay, so pretty and, close. Well, age wise, we're close, but he had a band, and they were. He was just like, you know, th this is I'm doing real stuff. You're just playing around. I play the keyboard. You play the record player, and and so I it just sort of he kept a, a, a distinction between them just like without really thinking about it. 
you know, it was just big brother stuff. And um, so it wasn't like, here, come along, let me show you these chord changes and boom, 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 boom. There might have been a minute, a little bit of that. But uh, so I just looked up to those guys and they were these mystical characters to me. And was, these are all down to earth, just, you know, musicians that you might, uh, if you imagine um, that Earth, Wind and Fire movie with the, That's the Way of the World and those guys hopping in that van and they just you could just kind of smell the cocoa butter on them and and all this stuff that they, they just uh, uh that 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 was a big part of the community that I came from and and those are musicians and then once I got to know them I I just couldn't believe how you know just they were deep love philosophy you know thinkers and spiritual people that were um when I was a kid, I was they were, I was intimidated. These were they looked like tough guys from the block, but at the same time, they're these spiritual artists uh, that were doing this fusion of styles and everything. To me, they were all trying to do what uh, Paul Jackson and Mike Clark and the Headhunters were doing, which is the sound that is just raw and mean and yet full of you know love and soul at the at the same time. And so I was kind of spoiled by, uh, by a lot of that. And the, the kind of distance allowed me to sort of elevate, sort of under, under, you know, I could see them as this uh, sort of lofty entity uh, that sort of came out of the ground. They, they sort of did it themselves. And then I, so I recognized when bands, would be seeking that same thing when I came across them. And so I could see why there were bands. So there were so many more unsuccessful bands, Scott, than the, than the ones that we play and put in the mix all the time. And, um, and why did they do that? Because there was something they were seeking. They was, they was trying to express something that was collective, that was, in the moment, but it, it was tied to all these histories and traditions. And the traditions, I think, reflect all the histories, but they were connecting. Everybody was connecting. Everybody was was blending, but not blending like in a blender. They were blending. They were, they were following Sly Stone's example, Stevie Wonder's example, Curtis Mayfield's example. They were following, you know, how, how can I say all of these things and bring all these things together? And um, some people, you know, did some, just the, the mechanism of it is what was so magic for me, the way people did it. And then they, they got it done, they got it run, they got some hits, got on the radio, that's, that's cool too. But I was always interested in, in the, the mechanics of of how these people came together to be to produce something that was greater than the sum of the parts, and mm -hmm. um, but one thing I noticed out here in the Bay because you mentioned Sly and we always mentioned Sly, there were a lot of bands that wanted to be a Sly Stone type band, wanted to do a Sly Stone type or a Grand Central Station type band, which was. We knew that was kind of Sly and Family Stone 2.0 in the in the 70s, but there was no Sly. There was no next 
sly for, for a variety of reasons. And so there was a lot of great music, a lot of exciting bands, a lot of great times. And it would just depend on what day you're like, ooh, this is nice. I'm having a good time. Ooh, this is kind of cool. If only they had somebody with Sly's talent, this would take it, take it to the next, next level. And I keep thinking about that. You know, Tower of Power was huge, but their best years are when they had Lenny Williams, right? And there's great band, great time. They're cool. And then I'm like, oh, but the Lenny Williams years. Oh, and I, I would go back and forth with that. But that's part of that is your love. And then part of that is your music snobbery. And you, you want to, you, you, you kind of have to be cognizant of that. And sometimes make sure you let go of that. Well, I think in hearing, you know, listening to you, Ricky, and, uh, you know, also reading your posts and things like that. I think both of us have eased back a little bit from back in the day where we were both pretty, you know, it's either bonafide funk or it's, you know, a sellout or whatever, you know, but to go back and sort of, you know, lighten up a little bit and better appreciate the economics and, you know, uh, things like that and just what else was going on and have a broader perspective of it. I think, um, you know, I can appreciate better some of the other stuff that back then I was really dismissive of. Um, and also I can better respect some of the artists for some of the decisions that they might have made. Um, you know, I, I still wish that a lot of them would have done more funk, but right. I get it, you know. I, I, I get it. And the last time I saw Kool and the Gang, and they, that was when Kelly's Bayon was still there. And DT was still there. Um, and uh, Funky George, I think he came out because he doesn't play the whole set anymore. I think only Cool plays the whole set with the band. And they do a seamless mix, really, of their, of their pot stuff. They bring in youngsters to do that. And then the youngsters take a break and then they would get into some of the OG, I mean, OG. Uh, soul vibrations love the life you live type of stuff and um summer madness they would always play and then um i think it was george that got out there and said you know some people say they they would they almost have a disclaimer some people say you know we sold out when we made this other music but you know we paid for all our houses Pay for all our kids to go to college and whoop, 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 and had a good time. And so, and we're still here now playing the music that we love from back in the day. And they didn't always spell that all the way out, but you can say that's, that's what we're doing here. Doing that allowed us to be able to be here 50 years later playing our favorites for you. And so they had... I think they had that worked out and they have the pitch about that uh, kind of worked out that they probably had to, uh, you know, they've had to, they have had decades to work on that. Um, but it just made me love them even more because there was a time when, uh, when, you know, we were just like this. Like is, betrayed almost. Yeah. Yeah. Sacrilege. <laughs> how dare you? And uh, I saw them once with, when they had the, uh, 
Steve, um, the lead singer guy, JT, right? James Taylor. And he was at a San Francisco club. I think it was the I-Beam or uh, one of those San Francisco clubs. And he was like, what y'all want to hear? And, and somebody said, Funky Granny. That might have been me. <laughs> he said, well, there'll be no Funky Granny here tonight. Because uh, I guess at that time, they were still riding, you know, the the, the pop thing. Um, you know, with so much access to all the music, anybody that clicks Cool and the Gang, they're going to find their latest album, which is pretty good. Um, all their, you know, 80s pop. And then, then when they hit that mother load, uh, that wild and peaceful music is the message, lie the world's period, spirit of the boogie. I mean, like, whoa, this is this is this is uh, you know, th- 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 this is some hidden, this is some hidden information that people kept from me all this time. And uh, you know, that's just kind of how it goes. And again, I wish it wasn't such top secret information. I wish it wasn't so hidden and hard to hard to bring about and hard to hard to recover for people to to kind of see how all these pieces fit because we're so far from it, man, 50 years. Um but it's now people can kind of see how more clearly how it's all connected and just the fact that and I, I do this when I teach my classes. I said, there was a thing of an artist putting a variety of sounds together on a record. And I tell my students, most of you have a, you know, a playlist or an artist that you like, and you've got 25 tracks that are the same style, the same beat, the same, you know, uh, kind of sound. And, and I just... I try not to judge it, and I just say there is a time when uh, it was up to the artist to show how broad their range is, not how can you know how they can consistently do one thing, and just leave it there and let people make their own choices. You know, as I'm thinking about this and we're talking, I'm, it occurs to me that back then, when those groups were doing that and those artists were doing that, if maybe there was the kind of communication there's today that artists have access to with their audience, I would have better understood because I would have heard some direct messaging from them, why they're making certain decisions and why they're doing certain things back then, especially the black acts, they didn't get much ink, you know, unless you really sought it out. And if you did find it it was probably going to mostly just be really hyping whatever was new, you know, and not really getting into some of the nitty gritty of what was going on inside their heads and why they were doing certain things creatively you know, and it's tricky because sometimes he's like, "Ooh, and Scott, I'm sure you've done it." It's like, "Ooh, I get to interview so and so who was there in 1973," and then you ask them, and they're just sort of, sort of fuzzy about the mystical about the whole thing, and they don't necessarily, uh, they can't bring it, bring back that that moment that uh, when all these uh, I- ideas were, were flying and the urgency was there to say something and be something and become something and share that becoming with your audience and all those things that might, you, you may not get it that way. Um, the 
I used to hate when Don Cornelius would do interviews and on Soul Train because he has a he has kind of a droll way of asking questions. And it took me a minute and a lot of reruns to watch before I realized he can like when he introduces a band, he hypes them like the best radio DJ around. But after they play, he's real just kind of slow and and I just think kind of meanders around sometimes. But every now and then he'll catch somebody and they'll kind of spell out why they're doing what they do. And uh, he asked Ramsey Lewis one time, how do you, you know, how, how is a jazz band doing this R&B music type of thing? And he basically, and Ramsey Lewis spelled that whole thing out about jazz was too abstract and the, the, the people didn't understand it. But other people like Chick Corea and Santana and Herbie Hancock are, are doing this and boom, boom, boom. And I was like, well, that's that's gold. That's gold. He's he put it, he put it all. And so I use that, I keep that. And that's not available on your best of soul train that you might purchase and this and that. That's one of those bootlegs I got from Calvin Lincoln uh back in the day. Um so it's so it's so it's so crazy. We have to kind of get this history all uh, underground. We have to get this underground history and just and try and try our best to put it out there, and, may, and maybe others will catch up to it. Summer of Soul gave me some hope. I mean, I was hoping that it would uh, open some floodgates somewhere. And I felt that way too. And I'm hoping that he doesn't, he keep, uh, um, Questlove has announced he's doing a Sly Stone documentary. And I, um, 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 hot and cold about that. I'm excited, but I'm like, don't mess this up. Don't do a New York version of a Sly Stone story. You know, don't start the top. There's the whole, the whole region is what made Sly's music what it is. And um, the doo-wop vocal group he was in in high school, the Viscanes, a lot of those people are still around. Um, and, you know, there's ways to really dig and, and tell that story. And now's the time to do it. We're, we're not going to be, a, those folks are not going to be around forever to tell those uh, kind of origin stories of this music that I see as, it's not just fun music, Scott. It's like, I had to break this down one time because there's there's a, um, a thing that uh, Scott Brown, you probably know him, uh, he's at UCLA, and um, he's been working with the folks in Dayton for the Dayton uh, to to tell the story of Dayton funk, right? And there's there's this whole thing of the funk capital of the world, and I'm okay with that. But um, he worked with uh, some people at the, there's a private school in Dayton called Dayton University, and they put together the Dayton Funk Symposium in 2018. And somehow I was late hearing about it, but I went there and it was it was very well done and it was it was a scholarly thing but i got to meet all these dayton funk legends a generation late right 
and um, that guy David Webb. I don't know if you've checked in with him. Yeah, I've had him on the show, actually. Okay, that's good. Um, and at that time, he had a, a, a facility so we could walk in to a funk museum, and it was glorious. It was spectacular. And you had Zaps, uniforms, and sun, and all this you know, recognition of all these people. And um, who walked in that day? Um, Doug Wimbish walked in that day, who is from the Dayton area. And he had all these, he just, stories just kept coming out. You know, I'm like, this is a beautiful thing. This is a great thing. Um, you know, I, I love the way that story's getting properly told and and scott has a book on dayton funk that needs to come out and he, I, I would say any day now but um you know we got issues that slow us down sometimes when you writing and and then once you write you have to say okay this is enough and then you gotta publish it that's a whole other thing but he's been doing all this and so those dayton people asked me to do to do a talk for the second one and I said okay well let me map out some of this funk history that's in the book and there's the thing I think it's on page 20 where I talk about how all the funk things how all these different styles come together how gospel and jazz and rock uh come together to be soul and black rock and jazz fusion. And then you have the great funk bands. And then from the funk bands comes disco, comes house and techno and hip hop. And when you step back and look at it, everything relevant in the music currently, all these traditions went to the funk and then all these other things came from the phone. So what does that mean? Let's look at the phone mm -hmm. and how it happened, why it happened, and what it is. And um, and I remember because they wanted to publish it in some little pamphlet, and they had to I had to work with those people. I could do it if I had Photoshop anyway, or you know, where you just draw your little layout. And I was like, you know, damn, I've been kind of saying this, but. That's what we're living. That's why, that's why we're doing this because the funk is this kind of centerpiece of the change from pre-modern to modern music right there. Um, and just about every artist will tell you that in every show you go to, uh, you'll hear, you'll hear these bands that, you know, okay, let's you know that we can hit it. And I mean, I remember when I saw I had a girlfriend in high school. We went to see, she wanted to see Boss Skaggs. And I'm like, okay, I'm glad you like somebody we can go to show together and see. And he opened uh, playing Lowdown. Right. And I was like, yep, I, I don't blame you. He wanted to let you know he could play it. He didn't want you to spend the whole show waiting for him to play it. But he wanted to let you know he could play it. And so I was like, okay, you know, I get it. And he got it. And that was, you know, that's, I don't know if he's still around, but that's, you know, a cornerstone of his act. And for a lot of people, that's their, that's their act. And they, they know that. And some people, I mean, 
you and I, we can talk about how hardcore some of this funk is. Sometimes people have no fear of funk, and that makes their music really, really enjoyable. And we can tell that. Um, the other day, I played some Ahmad Jamal. Ahmad Jamal is a sophisticated jazz man, but every time I hear him, there's a little bit of a little nugget in some of his stuff. I'm like, okay, I I get it. You're not afraid of funk. The same with that Ramsey Lewis. It's like if they wanted, if they, you know, if it was ne- if it was needed, it was in their bag of tricks. They're at least informed and by it. I love yeah. You know, um, as far as like funk being swept under the rug, I don't know about you, but I had high hopes finally when I would say it was like by the early 90s, you know, started hearing like funk and like, you know, advertisements to the mainstream. And it was like trickling in all these places to mainstream America that it had never been before. And I was thinking, wow, it is finally going to take hold and it's finally getting mainstream. But it did not. You know, it didn't do anything really for those true funk artists. I don't get that at all. It's a it's a it's a tough one because I was noticing it. You know, I had little kids around that time, and it was in the Shrek movies. And sh- you can hear Shining Star. You can hear some of these funk songs in the in the in the kid movies, and uh, and that was cool. And then I kind of realized a lot of those were made by Pixar in Emeryville, and these Bay Area folks animators understood funk, same generation as me, that type of thing. But um, it's it's tragic for me from both ends. And when I, because this time of year, they always list uh, who gets in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I'm like, do I got to go through this again? Do I got to go through just the, just the, uh, the abandonment issues again? And, um, and again, that happened. Yeah. So no Rick James, no Ohio players, you know, no, no, none of the great funk bands, no, no bar K's, no cameo. These people have been like in the mix for 50 years. And not only is rock and roll, rock and roll thing is, is tough because going all the way back in a lot of, back into the day, de- back in the day, a lot of those bands disappeared from pop radio. And so a lot of these folks that are somehow in charge of the the myth of rock and roll and this, they didn't even hear a lot of the funk in the late 70s and 80s that these artists was were still pumping out. And so they don't even know what Cameo was doing besides Word Up, okay? They don't even know what, uh, you know, Lakeside was doing if they even know Fantastic Voyage, right? But wait a minute, these people have been here you know, all of our lives putting, you know, and giving us joy for generations. And not only the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is not ready, there are no institutions in place that can recognize what these artists have done. And that that is, that's like, well, wait a minute, we don't have, well, there's no, well, you know, there was a bit of a thing when uh, Obama was president he would have these events and people would perform. And I remember when Esperanza Spalding got up there and performed Stevie Wonder, uh, overjoyed, uh, on stand-up bass and, and vocals. 
And I'm like, that's some classy stuff. That's some pretty nice stuff. There's an opportunity for the classy dimension of our music to be recognized. That's a beautiful thing. That's nice. Now, you know, did they have, uh, you know, I, I don't know who did Earth, Wind & Fire play the same day. I mean, it was, it was a, there were a few inklings of, of uh, around the stature of that sort of the cultural dimension to the Obama presidency gave a little bit of, of sort of insight as to what could be done to recognize these legacies of contemporary music, contemporary black music. But I mean, obviously a lot of things have flipped and gone in the opposite direction. And it's, it's really tough. It's tough to watch these bands break up. It's tough to watch these people because they don't get a chance to officially retire comfortably. You know, they don't get a chance to say, hey, I'm not playing anymore. Um, I, I respected what Morris Day did when he said last call. That was his album, the last call. And, you know, I'm going to close up shop here. And it felt right and it felt good. And I'm like, you know, you you captured that moment guy and i respected that and then i see he's on the bill to play again so i guess it was just good you know a good promotional gimmick but um Other musicians know, don't retire they don't they don't retire until they can't breathe anymore and we're kind of spoiled by that right because we kind of still want them and we still want new music from them a new mix from them uh we still want that magic and what is that magic it's sort of a lost it's a lost uh you know it's it's a it's a lost feeling and and we don't have the the literature that works around it that that captures that and this is what I was trying to say about Scott Brown's book on Dayton Funk. That's a generation, the 70s is just a generation that doesn't get written about. Scott, you probably have um, those soul music books, you know, the Peter Gralnicks, the sweet soul music. There was just so many books about uh, the 60s soul sound. And, um, and they're good. They're great. They're great works but comparatively there's next to nothing on the 70s sound that puts it in perspective and we, yeah, you we know sure, it we sure some, about it we sure some I've common frustrations it. like that uh, yeah we both at the time in the 80s you know there was nothing serving that and you know the only stuff was by um you know, rock critics that had no regard whatsoever for funk and, you know, hardcore black music. So um, I know that inspired you, inspired me, but also so much aggravation and frustration about it, too. You know, it's just not just it's injustice. Right. And it people just fell into these grooves and it's like, well, hip hop, you know, is making something out of nothing. And it's just sort of the survival mechanism. And it's, you know, it's just out of deprivation comes inspiration. I'm like, well, that's okay. That's sort of a, a narrative that's been around. But there was this other narrative of folks that had means, 
had the support of you know families could you know could could you know get a garage band together and and do these things and formal musical training and church musical training and the streets that they was rolling rolling around in and put all these vibes together and the rhythms that you make uh connect all these loose threads into a groove and that's what you do and that's what funk can do for anybody but um folks ain't they're not they're not they're not ready for this conversation man but well that's why we're, it's a, we're trying to affect change we, that's you know that, that's why it's important that you continue to do what to do I, man i don't know how you find the time to do it I mean, are you retired? Do you I wish. To, I wish I was retired. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's hard, man. I put in tons and tons of work and hours just to do it. Yeah, and it's about the love. And um, I try to explain that to people about the radio show because the daytime at the radio station is is news. It's journalism, and they pay the journalists to to do what they do. And that's that's great. While there's still a budget at KPFAS, another store, but the late night people, the the music people, the culture people, we just do it for the love of it, right? We don't see any money. As, as a matter of fact, we're told not to see any money out of it because it's a nonprofit institution. Yada 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 yada. So we totally do it for the love, and you know, I would do it anyway. Um, and you know, if I'm not on KPFA, I'd be somewhere else, and maybe doing a podcast like yourself, because um, I just feel like it it reflects so much that could um, be meaningful, could save the world, but it could be meaningful. And you know, so that's where I, that's where I've always been, and. It's hard. It's hard to keep things going uh, consistently. Sometimes, um, you know, I think people want and need and live for the funk. Still, even if it's not as um, clear cut and visible to them to this day, that's my feeling. Uh, well, that's, that's the beauty of the side. internet is is they can get access to it if they look for it. You know. Whereas for a while, it was almost impossible because so much of it was not even reissued on CD for the longest time. And the internet wasn't really hopping yet. You know, those were some dark times, man. Funk. <laughs> so who are you listening to nowadays? Uh, well, of course, I listen to, you know, all the good stuff as much as I can. Um, but I listen to the new stuff, too, as much as, as, I, as I can, because I always want to hear new stuff. Um I like that um, Skunk Mob, you know, the P-Union, now the Skunk Mob. That's a good record. Those guys are down there. CM Tally gave me a L.A. Maggots shirt. I need to represent with it. And, uh, you know, but it's been a while since they had some of those lazy just afternoon jams and people go out there and mix and just, and just vibe on it. And that's a good thing. Mean, that's a beautiful thing. Um, and um, yeah, every every chance I get down there, I try to catch Jara and slap back. 
because those guys do it for me. Oh, they bring it, whatever, man. whatever he comes up, whatever incarnation of his family band. Maybe he'll be playing with his kids in the band next, you know, decade, and um, and and he'll still be popping with it. Um, and I think I personally think every municipality has their own uh, Jara Harris and you know some some of their own L.A. Maggots type of you know collective of of funk people, and maybe. You know, when you catch some of those P-Funk guys that are touring, you know, I suppose if we asked them, I, I think they know. I think every every time they go to another big city, they kind of know the half dozen folks that are represented, that have been coming since the 70s and 80s to check them out. Um, and well, I, I definitely got more hope when, you know, these groups came in from the jam scene, you know, like your Lettuces and your Galactics and um deep in a blackout and all these groups that, that kind of came a lot of them white guys who just embraced the funk and and i mean to me they're they're in the pocket i mean they're legit you know a lot of those guys they're not just doing it they're doing it you know and um i've noticed how bootsy seems to always hear who's doing something and now he's real quick to collaborate with them too. And uh, so when I saw him do that thing with lettuce, Bootsy is just—he's uh, keeping up with the funk better than we are, man. He just—he's he's always uh, tapped—you uh, know—tapped in uh, a little bit ahead of the game. And, and you know, even if he's not touring, he's definitely bringing it and giving it and that just you can't you can't can't do much better than that man there's much more to this great truth and rhythm interview just continue on to the next part of the episode also be sure to subscribe to this channel if you've already done so please share it with friends and become a member by joining truth and rhythm on patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net thank you very much <laughs>